You can imagine the tragedy here. Aaron Steinman wakes up in the morning. He's camped near Ayers Rock. He crawls out of his tent and looks around. His bike is gone. A KTM 500 EXC that he's ridden around the world for several years at this point, he's almost home, and the bike has been stolen in the night. Now, in case you don't know what a KTM 500 EXC is, it's a type of bike that most people would refer to as a dual sport bike at best, and maybe a large dirt bike on steroids, but very few people would look at it as any sort of travel bike at all. But Aaron rode it all those miles, all those days, through thick and thin, and he was convinced it would be the bike he would never let go, he would never sell. Now, nearing the end of his adventure, he wakes up, and it's gone. Well, we're going to talk with Aaron about his trip, about the bike, and about what happened at Ayers Rock. All this coming up. My name's Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. I'm Sam Manicus. Simon. Austin Benz. Simon Pavey. Brian Phil. Jocelyn Snow. Charlie Borman. Carl Parker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Grant Johnson. Jimmy Lewis. Elspeth Jansen. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Google Tech filters, cyclepump.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear, greenchiliadv.com. Um, my name is Aaron Steinman. I'm from New Zealand and I've been overlanding for the last four years. Well, it's got to be a little bittersweet for you for right now because the last time I talked to you, um, last time, last time I talked to you was in 2017. I actually, it was March of two. As, as a matter of fact, it's almost the same day that I talked to you back in 2017. Oh, Do you realize that? I, I just realized that now it's, we're one yeah, day off flies. when we spoke in 2017. Yeah. Time flies, doesn't it? It does. But, but in any case, you've just finished this massive trip that you've done. Can you talk about how that started? Why did you head out on a trip to begin with? Um, yeah, originally I started my trip. My whole goal was to ride my motorcycle from New Zealand to Portland, Oregon. And that's where we caught up last as I just finished that uh, section of the journey and, and arrived to Portland. And really that was that was it. That was the goal. That was the whole trip. And I thought I was finished with the trip once I got there and I was going to get a job and settle down and, and carry on with normal life, so to speak. And then I guess... Um, it just doesn't take long of, 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 I'm always in that habit of looking at Google Maps every day as you're traveling and things like that. And after about a month, after looking at the map all the time, I thought, well, Portland just seems like an odd place to finish. And, and I kept on looking at Alaska and you know, hearing about the Dalton Highway and things like that. And I thought, well, it just makes more sense if I go up and finish the end of the continent. And then it seems like a, a more complete trip saying, okay, I went from the bottom of New Zealand bluff, where I mentally I started, and then ending up in Prudhoe Bay, dead off Prudhoe Bay in Alaska, and then looking at a map that seemed like a more of a complete trip. Mm. So that's where you, you ended up, is Alaska? Yeah, so after 
because when I was in Portland, it was winter. I believe it was like mid-January, late January. So I decided as soon as I get a fine weather window, which was the beginning of April, I would carry on and, and complete that um, Alaska part. So that's what I did. I, I took off in uh, late April and just kept on heading north and, um, and, and heading up until I hit dead horse Alaska. You, you, I remember you, you called it the big OE, which is a, uh, is a Kiwi thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. A lot of um, people coming out of school go and do their big OE, which is uh, short for overseas experience. And uh, they go and do their travel for a couple of years and then normally come home, settle back into New Zealand life. But yours has been, what, three and a half years? Yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of turned into the, the, the forest. Well, I call it the forest gump trip because it, it really didn't start out as as much as uh, as long as I thought it was going to turn into. Like I say, finishing in Portland and then not finishing Portland, all of a sudden carrying on and, and getting, heading up to Alaska. And that was really the whole summer too. It wasn't a short trip. Um, I really took my time going up through Canada and, and, and Alaska, um, not in a rush to get back down um, to Portland. So it was another I think, four or five months on the road of um, doing that. The, the thing is that what's different about what I see is different in the trip that you did is the bike you're riding because you're riding a, a KTM 500. Can you talk about the bike? Yeah, KTM 500 is basically a barely street legal dirt bike. So for anyone who, who doesn't know motorcycles, they would look at it and just think of it as a trail bike, um, not really made for long distances, um, not the most comfortable bike to be on, admittedly. But again, I hadn't really planned on doing a massive trip on it. Like, I mean, Port, you know, New Zealand to Portland is a pretty decent sized trip, but I hadn't planned on doing a round-the-world trip on it, so to speak. Um, but for me, that's sort of my background. I came from a dirt biking background and used to do a bit of motocross and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, it's just that style of bike I've, I've been riding, and I was just thought that was a right fit for me. What's the what's the difference sort of between a dirt bike-style bike compared to what you would probably consider an adventure bike, what you see everybody else riding? Uh, size. I think size is, is a huge thing. It's obviously a lot smaller bike. It weighs a lot less. Um, everyone's going to talk about maintenance on it being a lot, lot higher. And yes, it is. Like I do oil changes more than most people, but it's a very simple bike. It's a simple bike to work on. An oil change will only take me five to 10 minutes. Um, you know, to take the wheel off is only, you know, a couple minutes to do a flat tire and things like that. So it, it's a really basic bike. There's not a lot of electronics on it, so there's not a lot that can go wrong with it. Um, and what I found out is that because my bike, I with the gear I have, I use a Giant Loop Coyote bag, which is a soft, soft luggage, and that's what I prefer. And it's my bike is the widest point of the handlebars. So it opened up a lot of accommodation for me, where as long as I could get it through a doorway, um, I had safe parking for it. So that's what helped out. And I'm traveling alone, and I like to explore. I like to sort of go more towards the off-road style roads. And I felt safe that if I fell over, I could pick it up pretty comfortably by myself. And that was a huge thing for me. Mm, yeah, because it's so lightweight compared to an adventure bike. But you're talking the one bag. 
you, you managed to get all your stuff for around the world trip in one bag on the back? Uh, two bags. I would have that coyote bag, which comes with three dry pods in it. So on one side, I would have my tools, spare tubes. And then on the other side, I'd have my camping equipment, um, cooker and, and pots, pans, etc. And then the top bag, I uh, have my clothing, which is really minimal. Like it's, For me, I had one pair of jeans, three pairs of undies, three pairs of socks, three t-shirts. And never more than that, sometimes less. So clothing was, was a big thing I cut down on. And then I did have one other top bag that I put on top, and that had my tent, sleeping bag, sleeping pad, and a few little odds and ends and stuff like that. Um, but I do ride with a little backpack as well, and that's what I, where I keep all my paperwork. So, you know, passports and extra money and, and pa- paperwork for the bike. So I feel like because I don't have a tent bag, I can jump off the bike, run into a store, do whatever, and everything's on me. Isn't that a lot of weight for a dirt bike or basically a, a, a barely street legal dirt bike um, to have on the back? Well, that's half the key to it really is, is really trying to keep it as light as possible. So it's still a 500. It definitely doesn't feel underpowered or anything like that. Like it handles it fine. Um, and again, with that, with that bag, I was able to put most of the weight on the seat because it doesn't have much of a subframe. But it, no, it handled it fine. Hmm. What, what sort of mods did you do to the bike to get it ready to go? Uh, big fuel tank on it. So it's a 5.3 gallon, um, 20 liter tank on there. A different seat because the stock seat's like a piece of four by two. So a seat concept seat went on there. And bark busters, just, you know, in case you drop it so you're not breaking a lever or anything like that. And that was it. That's how I started started out with it. That That was the only mods I did, but as I've gone along, I've just added stuff as I, as I've gone, you know, I've put wider pegs on it and changed the levers. And when I was going through the Netherlands, I went to the factory, Han factory and got uh, Han wheels with a cush drive. And so, yeah, it's just evolved. So, you know, lots of little pieces of bling on it now and stuff like that. You just mentioned the cush drive. Did you have trouble with the, with the straight drive? No, no, I, I, it all went fine. Um, I had the original wheels on it for about 70,000 K, but I had bent the back room a couple times um, and just been a bit rough on it in the bush, I guess. So it was a good call just to change them out, and they gave me a really good deal, so it was hard to turn down um, a nice new set of wheels for it. You mentioned maintenance for the bike. One of the, one thing is oil changes, isn't it? I mean, oil changes. What's your interval? Well, I think I, I really started off doing it too frequently because um, I was probably doing it every fifteen hundred k to two thousand k, you know, and not letting it go much more than that, which is a lot. But it only takes one and a half liters, um, and you know, I always carry a spare oil change on me. But as time went on, I just you know realized that. I, I don't need to do them that often, and I looked at something like a KTM 690, which holds 1.7 litres. I'm at 1.5 litres, and they recommend that oil change at 10,000 K. So, you know, I'd go on conditions on if I've just done a big stretch of slamming it down a highway, which, which I don't really like to do, but sometimes is unavoidable, um, I, I'd stretch it out to be comfortable doing a three or 4,000 K or um, later on when I was going through somewhere like Siberia, 
uh, I was a bit more limited on oil, so I, I stretched out because I did have a couple changes on me, but I still had to get a pretty good distance before I could find decent oil again. Oh, did you have any issues with stretching it, like changing the oil change interval from what they're recommending to what you thought was better? No, no. Uh, I mean, the thing's still ran, ran pretty good. I mean, I've had to do motor work on it. I've rebuilt the top end a couple of times and, and, and did the bottom end once just really for peace of mind. Um, when I was in the country of Georgia, it was the bike was on 100,000K and no one had really done 100,000K on one of those bikes before. And with the next leg coming up of the star countries, Mongolia and Siberia, I decided that it was probably a good time to do it. Mm, did you check the tolerances when you pulled it down at 100,000K? No, I didn't. No. Because yeah. that would so, have been kind uh, of interesting, wouldn't it, to find out? Because as you say, it's not a bike that somebody runs that far. I mean, I'd be surprised if any bikes, any 500 EXCs have 100,000K on them. Yeah, I don't. I think at the moment it's probably one of the highest K 500s in the world. Um, like it's, it's sitting on 140,000 now, and that's how much I've done in the total trip. So when I came back from Alaska, I was sitting on 67,000 K and it was starting to smoke and it needed some work. I mean, I'd given it a pretty hard time though, um, admittedly. And so I got the top end done then and, uh, carried on. And like I say, um, at a hundred thousand K, it was just the crank. And at that stage I was in the country of Georgia and, um, so I no one there's no KTM dealer there or, or anyone that can really do it. So what I ended up doing because winter was about to hit, and there was no point carrying on from Georgia to try and get through the stars of Mongolia. So what I decided to do is head back to Portland and um, work for four months and then go back to my bike. So I ended up pulling the motor out of the bike, and it was just too heavy and big to fit in one suitcase. So I started taking pieces off it. You know, the clutch is going to come out because I'm draining the oil. And I took the starter motor off and it was still a bit big. And then I'm like, okay, well, the head comes off. And then it was a perfect size. So I put the, the base motor in one bag and then all the bits and pieces in another wheelie bag and basically went to the airport with two bags and <laughs> checked them in. And that was my luggage because I didn't have any clothing. I didn't have anything else to take with me. I just had what I'm wearing. And check that in. And um, yeah, well, I was lucky because a few people told me it probably wouldn't work and they might get might get pulled up on it. But they, uh, the bags turned up in Portland and then I just took it into the motorcycle shop there. They got a great KTM dealer there I worked with and uh, the guys rebuilt it and then basically put it in a chili bin um, or cooler, whatever you want to call it, and packed it up and then UPSed it back to Georgia. I remember seeing the photos of you stuffing it into your luggage and I was thinking you're not going to get this through because, you know, first of all, it's going to stink like oil, but second of all, you got a big block of metal. I mean, they didn't even, they didn't balk at this when it's going through security. No, they didn't. I wrapped it in um, like plastic. I got, bought me and bought some sort of thick cellophane stuff and I wrapped it all up and then I bought some aerosol and I just sprayed deodorant all through the bag and everything like that. <laughs> so cause I was a bit paranoid about the smell. But no, I mean, it all worked out and it made it through. Um, that, honestly, the hardest part about it was getting it back into the country of Georgia. That's, that's where it was turned into a bit of a stress for a couple of weeks because it just got held up. Uh, in the customs on the Georgian end. And technically, the bike and the motor had never left the country. Well, the bike was still there, but technically the motor had never left. But they wanted import duties for my own motor. They wanted me to pay 18%. And then they just had wanted 
paperwork after paperwork of why it was valued at this amount. And yeah, it was it was two weeks of every kind of second morning waking up to see, okay, what email have they sent me and what do they need now? And, you know, they wanted a tax number. And yeah, it was starting to get a little bit worried about it. But we finally worked through the system and um, they cleared it. Did you end up having to pay the, the import tax? I did. Yeah, yeah, uh, I did actually. Mm. But it all started fine? Uh, well, no. It, it actually, we got it mostly in the bike and I flew over there and I went to the motorbike shop and we were putting the finishing touches on it and I just went to pour the oil in and I looked down the oil's just coming out the bottom of the motor. And my heart just sunk. I was just like, oh. Uh, yeah. And um, then at a closer look, I realized the ignition cover had a little crack in it. And so that's where that was happening. So luckily it wasn't a major. But then the problem was getting another ignition cover. There's not one in Georgia. Um, and then called KTM in um, Austria. They're not going to deal with the public. So I called a KTM dealer in Austria. And they had the part, but they said they're not allowed to um, – supply to other countries beside their own. They weren't going to ship it out of another country. And and then not being in the EU, some people are like, oh, we're not going to ship out of the EU and stuff like that. So, yeah, it was um, another little bit of a stress, but I finally located one from a company in the UK that were going to ship it over to me and it was going to take a week. And then what I ended up doing is buying this two-part um, JB Weld type stuff and then just fixing the one that was on there because I just at least wanted to see if the thing was going to run because the last thing I wanted to do is wait a week, put that ignition cover on and something else happened. Right. So, um, yeah, so I sort of jimmied it up and put the oil in it and she started up and it all went fine. So, yeah, so it all worked out in the end. I was going to ask if, if JB Weld could have fixed the problem and got you on your way, but you ended up changing the cover anyway? Yeah, yeah, and the JB Weld did and it probably would have held great and I actually – um, had met another guy over there, Clinton, another Kiwi guy who was um, overlanding. And so we went out on um, a couple um, trips for a week um, around Georgia, around Tbilisi. And I used it and, it and it all went fine. But just, again, for my peace of mind, which is so huge when you're traveling alone, especially remotely, I just wanted to put a new cover on there and, and just know it's good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, JB, JB Weld's incredible. I mean, if you've got a cracker or, or something like that, you can get it into and fit. Boy, it can be a permanent fix in some cases. It's great stuff. Yeah, it should be in everyone's toolkit, right? Yeah. I mean, I think that's a note. That goes right up there for the cable ties and duct tape. Yeah, 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 definitely. And maybe even above the, the cable ties. I mean, I, I see more use for JB Weld uh, and duct tape for those sorts of things. Even using conjunction, they, they can be really incredible what you can do with it. Amazing stuff. Hey, yeah. as, as far as yeah. your route goes, because you just mentioned Georgia, mm-hmm. uh, just give us a quick rundown on your route. Yeah, so so after I had done Alaska and um, got back to Portland, again, this was when I was supposed to stop that part. Like, I'm like, okay, now I've completed the top of the continent. I've got to Alaska. There's that second part done. All right, time to settle back down. And, and again, this Forrest Gump sort of effect kicked in and looking at Google Maps the whole time. And, and for one reason or another, I, I decided that I didn't really want to stay in Oregon anymore in the States. And I, and I thought New Zealand was going to be the best place for me. Um, so I thought, well, I'm, I'm going to move back to New Zealand for good. And then I was looking at my bike and thought, well, what am I going to do with that? Am I going to ship it back or whatever? And I went, well, no, nah, let's just ride it back. So looking at the map, I looked at Portland, Oregon, and I looked at to Magadan, Russia. I went, well, that's a complete circumference of the world. So I'll just 
go that way. I'll ride it back to New Zealand a different way. So we'll go completely around the world, get it to Magadan, and then we'll ship it down to Malaysia or Australia from there and, and carry on to New Zealand. And um, so, yeah, I waited another couple months until the weather window came open again um, early April, mid-April, and just crossed um, to Toronto and had the bike from, from Toronto to Heathrow, which is the easiest shipping, and Air Canada were amazing to deal with. Um, it's, it's such such an easy thing to do with them at the moment, where I literally rode the bike into the cargo place in Toronto on a Wednesday. It could still have fuel in it, everything like that. I flew out to Heathrow the following day on a Thursday. I went straight to the cargo place off the plane, and there's my bike waiting for me, and do the paperwork, jumped on it, and rode off to the first gas station. Nice, uh, easy. And we had Air Canada on here one time. We did an interview with them about that program that they have. They run in the summertime for bikes. And, and I mean, it seems incredible. Roll on, roll off. I think the, the restriction with fuel, you mentioned fuel. I think they do say you got to have like a third of a tank or less or something. Yeah, yeah. It was minimal fuel. But yeah. hey, look, that's, that's still enough to get you to a gas station close to the airport. So mm-hmm. that's outstanding. Because it's just another little pain in the bum thing you have to do. So all in all, it, it's pretty painless, really. Um, and pretty inexpensive. I think for me it was thirteen hundred. Um, it could have been a thousand or eleven had I flown with Air Canada, but I found a, a fare cheaper that was going to save me more overall anyway with a different airline, and so I just used someone else. So, so yeah. So once I got it to London, that was my plan. Was okay. I'll get it to London, and we'll ride across to either Vladivostok or Magadan. We'll work that out as we go, and that'll take six months. Like. That was my window of, of getting the, getting across Siberia before winter hit. And um, that's how I started. But then once I got to London, I thought, well, look, I'm here. If I don't go to Ireland, I may never do it, looking at the map. So the next minute I'm going down to the very bottom of Ireland. And then I'm like, oh, well, there's Scotland. So then the next minute I'm at the very top of Scotland, John O'Groats. And then it just started snowballing. And um, then I rode down to Morocco. I'm like, well, I've got to go to Morocco and do see the Sahara and stuff like that. So I came out of Morocco and I started looking at my timetable and looking at how much time I had left. And I was, I was like, man, I'm going to have to ride every day in quite big days to cross over before safely before winter hits to make it in. Or I just throw my plan in the air of doing it this year away and just taking it day by day and just see where I end up. And that's what I decided to do. I was like, okay, well, I'm probably not going to make it. Um, so I'll just slow down completely and, and see where I end up. And that, that worked out really well because it just allowed me to go through the Balkan countries, which I hadn't planned on doing. I was just going to come up through Europe and then head sort of straight across into Mongolia. And instead, I could duck down into the Slovenia, Croatia, Bosnia, Montenegro, Greece, etc., um, Albania, and which were great countries to travel through. And also, I was mostly using the the TET, the Trans Euro Trail, as a guide. Um, so, have you heard of that, Jim? Yeah, yeah, I have actually. Did you did you ride the most of it? Yeah, yeah. So that's what I did. Like each country um, I got to that had it. Like I basically started from UK and went through the Wales one. There's nothing really in Ireland or much in Scotland as far as that goes. But it starts getting a bit better when you get into Portugal. France was sort of so-so and 
Um, but yeah, like the length of Portugal, I, I, I just downloaded that GPX file and that was really my guide of trying to stick to all the off-road and dirt roads and gravel roads and, and work your way through the country that way. And so it just takes a lot longer, smaller days distance-wise, but for me, better riding, better traveling, easier camping, um, cheaper in general and, and sort of sticking away from those those highways and big cities. So the the TAT or the Trans-European Trail, I think it's called, that goes yeah. from, from where to where? Um, well, each country's different, but so every country's sort of jumping, jumping on board with it. Um, so like I say, all those um, Balkan countries had it. There's some countries that don't. I don't believe Germany has really any off-road or Switzerland or anything like that, but France has it, Portugal, Spain, Italy. They all have their own versions of it. And they sort of change throughout the time. Um, they have what they call linesmen, people from that country that put the route together. And you can just get online and download that GPX file. And then that's going to be your guide from the top of the country to the bottom of how to work your way through it. Mm. So in a way, I mean, because we talked about you riding this bike that many people would say is not suited for, for world travel. In a way, because you like the dirt and because that's something you always seek out everywhere you are, you, you kind of did ride the right bike. For sure, for sure. Like a lot of these trails, you'd you'd really be struggling if you had, you know, a big BMW with all the hard panniers and roadish style tires, seventy thirty tires on and stuff like that. You'd be really limiting yourself. Mm-hmm. And especially again, being in a situation where, look, if you dropped it off in an awkward situation and you might not be able to pick it up, it, it sort of could be trouble for you. Um, and again, when I came down through, say from Alaska, came down through Canada, I actually ended up um, doing the BDR, the Backcountry Discovery Route, which is equivalent of the TET and probably preceded the TET, um, through Washington, Oregon, Idaho, Colorado, Utah, and did all the high passes in Colorado and looped my way back up around and, and did the Continental Divide through there. So all of that, my bike's just perfect for. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I wouldn't have wanted to be on anything else, really. And not to mention, I mean, last time we talked, we talked about this uh, as well, about the choosing the perfect bike and, and, and our attitude here at Adventure Ride Radio is, of course, take whatever bike you love because that's the bike you'll want to yeah. put up with, whatever nuances, because all bikes, I mean, every bike, doesn't matter what it is, you, you could be riding a, well, whatever, I'm, I'm not going to name names, but I mean, you could be riding any bike and it's going to have things you don't like about it, it's going to have things you do like about it. A big bike might be great on the highway, the open stretches, but it will be a pig uh, if you get out into the trails and you have to pick it up. So it, it's whatever you love and because that's going to give you the inspiration to keep going. Oh, for sure. Uh, and yeah, there's no, that's it. there's no one bike that's going to do all the things right. And there were definitely many days of um, like when I had to do the first section through Siberia, you don't have a lot of choice of off-road there uh, until you turn off to go up to your cooks to just start the road of bones. And that's really just a 2,500k slab and stretch of five days or 500k days. And that's, you know, my bum hated me. <laughs> like It's just not that <laughs> enjoyable to be on my bike. And if you get a day like that with a really stiff headwind and everything else, it's, yeah, it's not the most comfortable bike to be on, you know. So there's definitely days like that. I'm like, oh, I wish I was on something a bit bigger and nicer and smoother. Yeah, that that makes sense. Uh, you you mentioned about the, the first part of the trip. I just want to jump back to that because um, you said you went. We're going to take a quick break and then be right back. Stay with us. We got more coming up. Well, this is certainly a time where you could use a break to escape. And way to, the way to do this is have a look at Road Dog Publications. 
Road Dog specializes in motorcycle adventure books. Uh, the website is RoadDogPub.com. You can buy straight from them, or you can go to any quality bookstore and, and buy the titles as well. They have loads of titles with more coming all the time. And um, yeah, you can order it, get it delivered to your door, sit back and escape through someone else's adventure. Titles like Graham Fields, all of Graham's books, In Search of Greener Grass, Eureka, Different Natures, Ron Davis, Shiny Side Up, Zoe Cano, Hellbent for Paradise, and a bunch of other titles by Zoe as well. Man in the Saddle by Paul Van Hoof. Uh, Mike Fitterling, who is the owner of Road Dog, he, he has a couple of publications uh, of his own. Uh, one is Thoughts on the Road. There's just so much to choose from. So drop by the website, have a look. The, the website is rooddogpub.com. And grab a book, grab a couple of books, sit back and escape. Rooddogpub.com. And, and make sure when you're dealing with them, tell them you heard them on Adventure Rider Radio. If you take a, a good uh, rider instruction course, 10 to 1, they're going to talk about standing in your foot pegs and that connection between your foot and your bike and your lower legs and things like that. That connection between your foot and your motorcycle is paramount. And the only way you're going to get that connection and you could depend on that connection is by using quality foot pegs. IMS makes a full range of adventure motorcycle foot pegs. No matter what style rider you are, um, they've got a peg to fit your design from some super large ones with your ADV-1s and ADV-2s right on down to their core Enduros and other ones that they have there. Some of the teeth are dull and some of the teeth are sharp. Uh, it just depends on your riding style. There's one for you regardless of your riding style. And as I've said many times before, the difference is like night and day. Don't fool yourself. If you're not riding on a set of IMS foot pegs, then you should be. Have a look. IMSproducts.com is their website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there. You heard them on Adventure Rider Radio. IMSproducts.com. See and be seen. That's what they say at Cyclops Adventure Sports because they make a huge array of lighting for motorcycles, actually all kinds of things. Even if you don't ride at night, Auxiliary lighting can make the difference of being seen or not being seen. It's a story that you just hear too much when it comes to riding motorcycles. You know, you'll hear people say they've, they were riding down the road, they see a car sitting there, the person's looking right at them, and they pull out. It's because motorcycles are hard to see. Check for yourself while you're driving a car. Anytime you see a motorcycle, look at it. See how difficult it is to spot. And the way you make yourself more conspicuous, one of the ways is to have more lighting and especially bright LED lights. And that's what Cyclops Adventure Sports specializes in. They've got just, like I said, just a, a ton of different options for them. Plug and play lights. They've got um, one thing I really like is the Cyclops Evo Safety Turn Signal System, which turns your front signals into super bright white driving lights and then your rear signals into super bright red brake lights. And the, the LEDs, they, they just snap on and really command attention on the back for the brake lights. And of course, the white lights in the front add to your visual footprint there, your, your visual impression to the cars. Drop by and have a look what they've got. Like I say, a lot of plug and play things. They've got headlight replacements for LED headlights. Uh, CyclopsAdventureSports.com is the website. Anytime you're talking with them, just inquiring, whatever. Mention you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. CyclopsAdventureSports.com sense. Uh, you, you mentioned about the, the first part of the trip. I just want to jump back to that because um, you said you went from New Zealand to Portland. What, what was the route there? You went through South America, didn't you? I did. Yep. Yes. Uh, back to Santiago, then over the Andes to Mendoza, Argentina, and then straight up there back into, from Salta, went back into Chile to do that Ruta Las Lagunas into Bolivia uh, through the Alto Plano. 
and then Bolivia, Peru, and, and basically hugged the coastline up into Colombia and carried on. How many countries have you done? Uh, now, including New Zealand, will be 51. So all said and done, now finished, it's 140,000 K in 51 countries. And three and a half years. Yeah. <laughs> I know. For, for a trip that was supposed to be four months. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's not it hasn't been the most it hasn't been the smartest financial decision of my life i can tell you that well i don't know i mean you, you know looking back in, in years ahead when you're looking back you'll probably say it's the best thing that you ever did oh I, look i don't regret it now you know and it hasn't yeah no, it's been awesome but now that you're back and you're back home i know you're locked down right now because we're dealing with this covid 19 lockdown and and you, you're supposed to get a real job so you did mention to me that you're it's almost a bit of a reprieve for you as you hide out and avoid getting back to the real world but what are you going to do now i mean life has to be completely different for you i mean do you feel different and, and what are you going to do uh i th- i think if I feel, I don't know if I feel different, but I, I definitely know I am different in the fact that, you know, the appreciation of, of what you do have is a lot higher. Um, you know, as you know, just when you ride through all these countries and you just see a lot of people working really, really hard in poor countries, knowing that they're not really going to be able to get out of the situation they're in, it makes you feel pretty lucky to be on it on a motorbike that, you know, is worth quite a lot of money compared to what these people are even going to have, um, you know, to be in the situation you're in. So I think, it, you know, you get a good sense of appreciation of what, what you have. And, um, you know, I think my impatience has improved a lot, whereas some things might have sort of got to me. And, you know, now if like I had a breakdown in New Zealand, I'm like, oh, this is easy. People speak English and I have a cell phone with service. I mean, it's, <laughs> there's, there's, no, there's no problems. There's you no know? challenge like, here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's a good thing, isn't it? Instead of things like bugging you, you're like, oh, man, this could have been way worse. I'm going to be stuck in Mongolia somewhere. And, <laughs> you know, and the same thing. Yeah, like if something's, I don't know, if you get, you've got a supermarket full of food right around the corner and stuff like that. Were breakdowns so, when you had a problem uh, on the trip, was it a problem for you or, or was it, did it become part of your adventure? I mean, did it not phase you after a while? Well, I think I went, um, you know, prevention, um, my preventive maintenance was pretty good. So having done those um, engine jobs, like prior to it needing it, like when I was in Georgia, you know, that, that stopped me from having a, a breakdown. So I really haven't had any major breakdowns and the, one time I had something happen was my wheel bearings um, went out on the on Vancouver Island mm-hmm. and I was stuck on the side of the road. And I had remembered that a guy in Victoria had messaged me some days earlier and said, hey, I've been following your trip and I see you're up this part of the world. If you need a place to stay, give us a call. And so sitting on the side of the road, I thought, oh, that's right. That guy gave me a message. So I called him up and said, um, Hey, look, you know, I'm, I'm stuck here on the side of the road. Is that office still open in Victoria? If I hitchhike there to stay at your place, I need to get some wheel bearings and that. And typical Canadian, great, you know, hospitality and the people they are. He's like, oh, no, no, wait there, wait there. And sure enough, he drove like an hour and a half, came and picked me up in his truck, trucked the bike on the back and took me to his house and then took the day off work the next day to take me around the motorbike shop and get the wheel bearings <laughs> and get it all sorted out and, Oh, it was just amazing, you know. 
So um, that's really the only proper breakdown where I've been stuck, um, sort of on the side of the road. Um, or, you know, I had a, a pretty close call uh, a few weeks ago here, actually, where I, I dropped it in a river crossing and we both went floating down the river for a little while. And I was really out in a remote place. And then the bike just swallowed a whole lot of water, so it, it took a while to get the thing going again. But you just pulled the plug and, and managed to end up draining the water out and get it going. Yeah, we got the got some water out, and and after about forty five minutes, um, it wound over and it started. And um, so yeah, it, the oil was milky as anything, and it was awful. And I'm just in there kicking myself because I was, I was. I probably was, you know, didn't do any of the right things, didn't tell anyone where I was going. It was 10K up a riverbed. There's no cell phone service. I'd cross, you had to cross the river multiple times to get up to this sort of hunting hut that they have up there. And um, it was it was a mission just to get up there. And I was actually a bit concerned about coming out there the next day because no one was around. And it was the first river crossing at nine in the morning. And for whatever reason, I don't know if I had a rock wrong or what, but then found myself on my side with the bike in front of me and we were both floating down the river. And I'm like, oh, no, this is not going to be a good day. <laughs> I don't carry a spot tracker or a GPS or anything either. So, yeah, I mean, I guess you could have walked out, but uh, it would probably take you quite some time. Yeah. And, the, the, you know, I could still see the hut. It was a little way away, but I could still see it. So I know I had a CB in there, so mm. that would have been it. So, I mean, look, yeah, it was it was going to be more of an embarrassment, I think, of, of having to get someone to come and get me than, than a life-threatening situation. <laughs> yeah, the guy just rides the world and he comes back home and he ends up swamping in a river. I know. Yeah, I know. I know. It was going through my head. I was kicking myself. I weren't really exactly proud of myself at that stage. <laughs> I, I want to jump back to where you were talking about a minute ago, where, where I was, I, I'm sort of curious about the change, you know, because three and a half years is a long time on the road, 51 countries, like you said, 140,000 kilometers. You did a lot. You covered a lot. You met a lot of people. You did a lot of border crossings, mm. a lot of different cultures. Mm. What What do you think you know now about the world that you didn't know before you left? I think 99.9% of the people were out there are just good people. Like the amount of kindness that got shown to me through different countries, no matter which country, was amazing. You know, I can remember sitting, having lunch in Tajikistan, and a group of people next to me spoke very little English but understood on what I was doing, and they buy me lunch. You know, the amount of times I've gone to a campsite in Canada or Australia, something like that, and I've got off my bike and someone next to me is like, well, I bet you don't can't carry a cold beer on there. And I'm like, no. And, oh, look, here's a cold beer or here's a piece of fruit or, you know, it's just nonstop. And um, it, it's it's been in nearly every country I've gone through. And it's just sort of give you, gives me reassurance and human nature, humankind, um, and that in general, you know, people aren't out there to do anyone wrong. I mean, there's some bad people out there, but most of the people – and just getting about their lives trying to do the best they can. Um, you know, I remember a good story. I was in Portugal, and it was actually another river crossing I came up to on, on that Transgeo Trail. I was a bit smarter on this one. I decided to walk at first, <laughs> and then um, when, it, when it got up to my crotch, I went, yeah, this is probably going to be too deep, so I'll turn around and, and head back. And I got out of there, and I came into it. wasn't even a town. It was just like it was in the middle of nowhere, 
and there was one store and there were about 12 guys all on plastic chairs, all elderly guys in their 60s, and it must have been haircutting day because one guy had a set of buzzers and they were all lined up to get the haircut. And uh, so I sat down, I took my boots off and it was kind of starting to drizzle with rain and my socks were wet, so I'm wringing my socks out and uh, bought a can of Coke. And one of them came over, and none of them spoke English, but I do what I normally always do when that's the case. I pull my phone out, and I pull up Google Maps, and I point to New Zealand, and I point to me and the bike, and then I go through the world until I get to the country, Portugal, and then I push, you know, point to there, and they understand, like, me and my bike are running from here to here. Mm-hmm. And then normally, I, I, I rub my bottom, and then they see the seat, and they, no matter what culture, they give a bit of a laugh. They can see, yeah, yeah, <laughs> you get a sore bum on that bike. But um, where I was going with that is this guy went away and about 10 minutes later, he comes up and he's got two pairs of socks that he wants to give me, um, some dry socks because they saw I had wet socks on. And I was trying to explain to him, like pointing to my bag, I have more socks in there and dry socks, but they wouldn't take no for an answer. They just stood there and, and were pointing to my feet and dry socks and like I had to put on these dry socks and before I left. You know, so... And, and bless them. I mean, they were clean. They were nice and rolled up, but they were pretty thin. And I'm thinking, oh, I kind of want my merino socks that I've got <laughs> my back on at the moment. But like, you can't tune down the hospitality. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to put them on and take off. <laughs> You've got some so, high-tech um, socks in your bag, and they're giving you probably a pair of their own socks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, then, and like I said, they were pretty thin around the heel and stuff. And I'm like, well, you know, you, you, you just do it, eh? Um and so, yeah, and, you know, and also um, later on, and you know, that's it. You know, most of the people are out there and the people that have been willing to help me through so many things. Um, and then I had in Australia an episode where my bike got stolen. So um, right. that was a, Now, what happened yeah. there? Well, I was um, in Yulara, which is a tiny little town next to Uluru, um, Ayers Rock, mm-hmm. and in the campground. And, you know, um, there were other campers around. Uh, I felt like it was a safe place. My bike was 10, 15 feet from my tent. Normally, when I'm camping somewhere, I often will tie my bike off to my tent or I do something, you know, I've always got a bike cover on it and different things. And um, for any reason, I didn't. And I just basically, I woke up in the morning uh, about 5.36, looked out of my tent and the bike was gone. And uh, I, I was just devastated. Like I just went in a panic, you know, like I jumped out of the tent. And this camper, um, this German guy came in next to me, just looked at me, and I could see his jaw drop. And he goes, "What? I thought you were gone. And I go, well, what do you mean? And he goes, I saw someone taking your bike away a couple of hours ago. Like I got up to go to the bathroom at 3.30 in the morning, and uh, he just saw someone pushing it away. And so, um, yeah. Like, you know, it's not his fault, obviously. He, he just thought I was doing like a lot of people get up early to watch the sunrise. Mm-hmm. He thought I was just being polite, taking my bike out of the campground and stuff like that. So I just went into to panic mode. and Well, because this is your transportation, but this is also the bike that you've ridden around the world and you're, and you're going home. You're almost home. Yeah, and you know, it's like I've had many bikes and I've had many cars and stuff and I, I don't care when they come and go, they're just a thing. But this was the one thing that I was never going to sell. It's like your best friend, you know, mm-hmm. you get such an attachment to your bike that once I'm done, it's just going to be an ornament. It'll be above the fireplace, in the garage or whatever, but it, it's, it was I'm never going to sell the thing. And um, and then, yes, yeah, so I, I just sort of panicked and 
um, went to the campground office and there was a lady just about to open up and we called the police. And then I got on social media and this shows you the power of social media. I put a post on the Motorcycle Camping Adventure Facebook page um, and then also on Instagram and it just went viral. Like it, it, I couldn't believe how many shares and how quickly it got around. It was just amazing. Um, so, yeah, the police turned up and I talked to them and they didn't have high hopes. Like everyone had a feeling that it was probably someone from a local community and um, the gut feeling was we might find it but it will either be burnt or it will be in the desert somewhere or, or something. We, we just don't know. Um, someone's taking it for a joyride and if it runs out of gas, then they'll just ditch it wherever that might be. And uh, I've just filled it up, so I'm like, well, it's got a pretty good fuel range. So you've got a 300k radius, so we'll, we'll see what's going on. So yeah, I was stuck, yeah, and and it's sort of coming on summer. It's off season, so that campground there's no grass, there's no shade. By 10 in the morning, it's 35 degrees Celsius. It's going to hit 40 that day. Um, and and then this is just when, like again, the kindness of strangers come in and the the campground manager came up to me and saw me on my phone by my tent my battery's nearly flat he goes what are you doing i'm like mate i don't know <laughs> like at the moment i'm just trying to book a flight out of here I, I my head's just spinning and he said look well you just can't we can't have you sitting there like that um just here Let, pack your tent up i'm taking you to a hotel we'll put you up for a night or two whatever it takes wow and uh yeah like really above and beyond so he did he put me up and Again, the, the, how viral it went, I went to get lunch and the guy at, at the hotel sort of says, oh, how's your day? And I said, oh, I've had better days. And he goes, what's up? I said, oh, my bike got stolen. He said, oh, I've just heard about that. On I've seen that four times on my Facebook and different forms of social media already. Like the whole community knew about it. I had um, the radio station in Darwin call me up, like go live on the radio about it. And yeah, so it, it was amazing. It, it, it was amazing, but it also it kind of got a little bit. I was surprised at some of the comments that were coming out. Um, got a little bit racist there for a while. They had to turn the comments off on some of the Facebook pages because people were sort of using it as a bit of a different platform mm, yeah. on uh, different subjects, which was a bit sad. But anyway, I, I so I'm sitting in the hotel. This is about one o'clock now. I'm like, well, I just can't sit here and not do anything and. The, the police had said, well, it's probably going to be someone from the community. So I ended up going down to the little town square there, and they have um, a lot of different groups of Aboriginal people that sit around and do paintings that they sell to tourists and that. Mm-hmm. So I just took my phone and I'd go up to every group for a couple of hours, went up to every group and said, hey, can I show you a photo? And they say, yeah, and I sat down with them and I get my phone, I show them a photo of my bike, and I said, oh, this is my bike. And they said, oh, yeah. And I go, well, look, someone's taken my bike this morning. I go, I'm on this big walkabout, and I've been doing a walkabout around the world for three and a half years, and I'm nearly home, but this morning someone took my motorbike, and I need it to get back home. And I was wondering if you can help me. And a lot of the times they were, I was getting feedback like, yeah, we heard that bike this morning in our community, or we – know it you know or we we saw it or something like that and um then the next question was well have you gone to the police and i said well look i i have but i also traveled to many countries and in some countries the police are good and some countries the police are bad and i'm not from australia i don't know if the police are good or bad here but here's my phone number i give 
my phone number, piece of paper, here's my number, just call me. I said, no one's going to get in trouble. I mean, I've had fun on the bike for a long time. Someone's had their fun today, but it really just needs to come home. It needs to come home to its owner so I can finish my journey and my walkabout. And um, so, yeah, I think that went over quite positive with a lot of them. Like they, Some of them were saying, well, we'll talk to our elders and we'll look into it. And some of them say, yes, you'll get it back and things like that. And and while this is going on, do you, do you actually think you're going to get it back or you feel like you might be nah. wasting your time? Oh, uh, no, nah, I didn't really think I'd get it no, back. I mean, who would, right? I mean, why why would you get it back? I mean, if somebody steals it, they're not going to bring it back to you. They're just going to dump it somewhere and, and be done with it. I mean, that's that would yeah. be the way you'd think. Yeah, but you just can't give up hope. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, I just I, I just couldn't sit around the hotel. I just felt like I had to do something. Um, and I even had like a guy come up to me and go, "Hey, well, you were just speaking to the uncle of the guy who stole the bike and all of that." Like they seem to know. So you you sort of had the feeling that you're in the right area. You're you're talking to the right people, yeah. but whether you get it back or not, so what happens? Uh, well, a few hours later, the um, police call me, and uh, one of the rangers had found one of my bags out in the middle of the desert. And so they had an idea of which direction that they may have been taking it. And then um, later that night, I got a message from the police down at a different community, just over the border, about 200k away, and they sent me a photo and they'd found it. And again, it was like a Sunday night and the guy I spoke to said, look, normally we wouldn't be on shift on Sunday, but we saw how much exposure this was getting on social media, on Facebook that we felt like we had to get out there and get, do a bit of extra effort. And we all, like three of them, all went out to this community and started looking around. Um, and they found it, you know, um, which was amazing. The thing had been trashed. And, and within the day, they had taken all the stickers off it. They'd spray painted it black, um, all the indicators, mirrors, anything that could be ripped off was ripped off. Oh, wow. So they they'd still, they were planning on disguising it and using it as their, as their yeah. desert ripper. Yeah, that's it. And I think I think what happened is because all the Aborigines knew about it as well, like a guy that I was camping with, he even called me later that day and said, look, I was hitchhiking and two Aborigines picked me up and they knew about your bike. Like uh, everyone knew that I think these people who took it might have gone, oops, we've probably picked the wrong bike to steal. Now we've got to disguise it. Now I've got to just try and hide it. Um, and that's why they sort of went to attacking it and just making it try and look like it was something different. But as you know, you know, like at this stage, I can tell my bike, it doesn't matter what they do to it. It's got that type of kickstand, which is aftermarket, with that kind of skid plate, with those sure. type of wheels. It, it, it doesn't take long before you know. I mean, I know straight away. So how trash was it? Well, it, yeah, it, it looked it looked like it was terrible. Um but the, the thing is, knowing that um, they took it out into the desert, it was a 40-degree Celsius day, I don't know if they've got the thing stuck somewhere and they've just had it fully pinned trying to get out of the sand dune or whatever. So you don't know if they've cooked it or done anything. Um, again, coming back to that peace of mind, so I just wanted to get the motor checked out and get the head pulled and stuff like that. Um, and... and Here's an, you know, another good thing about the kindness of strangers or, or people involved is that uh, I got a quote to go pick the bike up because I, you know, it wasn't really rideable back to where I were, uh, and it was two hundred k away. And the towing company wanted twenty six hundred dollars to go pick it up and bring it back. <laughs> now this is kind of common for that area, isn't it? The, the tow charges it are extremely expensive. Yeah, it is. It is. And again, it was the manager of the campground, the CEO of the campground. He called me and, and told me he'd contacted the towing company. And, and then he said, like, we'll pay for it. 
I'm like, wow. what? I get, he goes, he go, I go, that's a huge amount. And he said, he said, look, it's a number we don't like, but we're willing to pay for it. And I was like, man, just look, just give me a couple hours because my phone's going off the hook, and let me see what I can do. And by that, and then I got in con- some guy had got in contact with me once he had found out the bike was found, and said, hey, I'm more than happy to go pick it up for you for free, and and bring it back. And I'm like, man, that's awesome. Um, don't do it for free, you know. Get your get your fuel costs and get whatever you think think you need out of it because this guy's going to be willing to pay you know a good price, so he'll be happy to get a good discount, you know, on it. Um, and that's what he did. This this amazing guy went down and picked it up, and then um, he was heading up to Alice Springs um, a few days later. And Alice Springs have uh, one of the most famous desert races held there called the Fink Desert Race. I'm not sure if you've heard of that. Mm-hmm. It's the one Toby Price races in all the time. So Rumi is a um, guy up there who's actually won that once before, but he. Is a mechanic, fantastic mechanic, um, works on the 500s all the time, so knows it inside out. So it couldn't have been in better hands. So uh, him and his partner, Damo, got the thing cleaned up and then uh, pulled the head apart and got it all checked out. And then uh, KTM came forward. Uh, I, they had done an article about me on their blog sometime earlier, and so I got hold of the marketing guy there, Adrian and Phil didn't know what happened and um, they got in contact with KTM Australia and they were willing to um, help out with some parts and a bit of money towards the labour costs and stuff. Mm, nice. So, um, and then and sort of on the touchy subject is, is also for some people was, um, and I did get a cop a bit of flack for this actually, is um, Chris Birch or, or Birchie as he's known is a famous Kiwi rider, adventure rider, um, I'm sure you've probably heard of and uh, he he contacted me on Instagram that morning when it got stolen and said, um, "Hey, look, you know, I'd like to set up a GoFundMe for you and to try and help out." And I said, "Well, I don't know, you know, I've sort of stayed away, steered away from that type of thing in the past." And um, he said, "Look, I'd really like to do it. I think it, it'll be a good cause and things like that. So if you're willing to let me take care of it, you know, I'll do it." And I said, "Well, you know, my head's in a whirl." And I'm like, "Yeah, go for it. No worries." Um, so he set it up. And then that thing just started going off. There was all of a sudden, you know, people contributing from all over and it just kept going higher and higher. And like by the afternoon, we're talking to each other and I go, Chris, it's got to stop. Like well, there's enough there that it's going to cover the cost for the rebuild and my flights to get to Alice and different things. And um, yeah, it, it was truly amazing. The generosity that came out from the motorcycle community that supported that and I know from people over, and, and probably I know from a lot of my close friends who, who maybe aren't in the motorcycle community but have followed my travels for years through Facebook and stuff. Um, it was anyone and everyone, and, and it was so humbling and greatly appreciated, and it really took this thing off um, the whole situation. You know, It really turned what could have been a massive negative and um, one of the worst times in my life, to be honest, you know, besides some close deaths, um, into a positive, like I just felt really supported um, through it. Which again reinforces what you said. You you learned on your whole trip about the you know what people are truly like. Well, why do why did you get flack over the crowdfunding? Oh, I was getting I was getting emails calling telling me I was a bigger. You know, I was getting people just I mean. 
But, but this is what I've learned, right? When you put yourself out there on social media, if you put something on a post and there's going to be a hundred people responding, you're probably going to get that one negative person in there. That's just mm. going to be, he's got nothing better to do. And, and you've just really have to understand that's probably going to come along with something like that. And I sort of get that. I've sort of tried to, it still sort of digs at me sometimes, but I just have got the understanding of exactly that is someone's going to have a comment about something negative or, you know, you've said something or done something and they'll turn it. But, but I guess part of this thing is that, um, you're on vacation sort of, you, you know, you're on your adventure, you're on your vacation and people are looking at it as, you know, you're, you're asking and you weren't, uh, someone else was for you, but you're, you're asking for people to sort of cover your, your loss to, to pay for your vacation, I guess, in a way. And I, I think that's sort of the, the stigma that goes along with that. Yeah. And look, and vacation at this point isn't even the, isn't even the right term. It's more of a lifestyle after you get, you've been going for three and a half years. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's. You know, a vacation to me is in one month or something like that. I mean, it, it changes. And that's kind of where I've normally been. It's like I don't think when people have, you know, suggested something, I'm like, well, look, everyone's working really hard. I don't feel like I should take someone else's money just to go and travel because I don't want to go work for whatever reason or, or whatever it might be. Um, not that that's the case. But you know what I'm saying? I mm-hmm. think everyone should be. Um, but some people just want to help to contribute and and they want to be part of it and i had like i had another guy rick um from portland oregon who when he found out that i was having to ship my boat motor back to georgia i had a company that dealt with the ups um in big numbers and he had contacted me and said hey look i hear what you're doing um and I'd, I'd, you know, met the guy a couple of times, gone riding with him, and he goes, look, I want to be part of this. Let me pick up the tab of getting your motor shipped back to Georgia. Like, I want to do this for you, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, that was – and something like that, I'm like, oh, okay, well, that's that's amazing. You know, it's amazing people out like out there like that. He, But he came forward to me. It was different than sort of reaching out. Now that you've done the whole trip and, and you've, you've done far more than what you ever planned to do, is this it? Is, is this the final thing? I mean, is this the chapter closed? <laughs> you, you're, you're done. You're going to go to work now. and Or is there something down the road? Um, no, I look at my bank account and I go, there's, there's work. That's what's going to be done. <laughs> you've got to get a job. <laughs> you've got to get a job. Like You can have all the dreams that you want right now, but reality's kicking in, mate. You've got to sit down and, and get a job. Um, and, look, and, and part of me does want to get back into a routine as well for a little while. And it's easy to say that now because I've just finished. Um, so I think we'll see what happens in six months' time. See how um, I feel. But see how I feel in six months' time. But what that job entails, I'm not sure. And, and look, these are testing times for everyone um, at the moment. And there's a lot of people out of work uh, with this coronavirus going on, this COVID-19. So, you know, here in New Zealand, we're in lockdown at the moment, complete lockdown. So, yeah, I, I don't know what opportunities are even out there and what the new opportunities are going to be when this is over with um, either. Aaron, before I let you go here, I'm I'm looking for some sort of tips, some sort of advice, something you can pass on that you've learned in your three and a half years to someone else who's maybe considering this or or, um, likes the idea of maybe heading off and and doing that. Uh, I I would say don't over plan it. Uh, Have a loose route, but definitely don't over plan it. 
and just be open to everything, be open to change. Like you have to be open to change. Um, you know, and that old saying, those who know go slow. These, these times, I, you know, the, not the last couple of years, I felt like I had a pretty good pace there, um, especially because it took me basically two years instead of one to, to do the last leg. But I would have probably liked to have gone slower at the start, but that wasn't what I had set out to do. I, I had myself a time frame I was going to be finished. But really, look, just don't overplan things um, and, and just go from there. Like time is your, your biggest asset. And I've seen this before where, like, for instance, Alaska and I'm on going to do the Dalton Highway and it's raining. Then We're camping in Coldfoot. It's raining. And half the camp packs up and says, oh, we're, we're leaving now. We're not going to do the, the highway. But they've come a long way to do it. But, but because it's raining that day, they're not going to do it because they have to be somewhere else the next day. Mm-hmm. And yet I'm like, well, I'll just wait the rain out. So another day comes, the sun comes out and, um, well, it was kind of out, you know, hardly gets dark there anyway, but it turned into one of the nicest days and had the best road conditions and stuff like that. So you just got to be patient sometimes and just wait, wait out the weather and, and, you know, like just, just have time on your side and just be open to changing your plans at will. Even if you don't get to what your destination was, what your plan was, even if you don't get that far, you're saying it's better to experience where you are rather than worrying about that final destination. I think so sometimes. I mean, mm-hmm. if it's a round trip, you're still going to make your way home. But perhaps, you know, instead of doing 15 countries, you do 10 countries, but you spend longer in those 10 countries and you spend not as much time seat time but more, you know, time actually experiencing that country and things like that. And that's where I started to sort of feel like I was saving my money in a way is when I found somewhere really nice to camp by a beach or something, then rolling in there at three in the afternoon, putting my tent up, instead of getting out of there the next morning at eight, I would take the next day off and I would have a nice place to hang out with and I didn't have to spend money on fuel that day. Um, it was just a cheap day for food and because it was normally somewhere cheap to camp, that's where you're going to spend it. Um, and pick those countries like that, like, you know, Mongolia is going to be super cheap, um, places to camp, you know, and whereas like Switzerland, okay, it's beautiful and it's nice, but not the cheapest. So I sort of would, you know, get through there a little bit quicker and aim for these um, cheaper countries to spend more time in. Aaron Steinman recently returned from his wandering motorcycle adventure around the world riding his KTM 500 EXC. We've got some great pics that Aaron has sent us uh, in the show notes for this episode and a link to Aaron's Facebook page if you'd like to connect with him. All that and more at our website, adventureriderradio.com. Look at the show notes for this episode.
Hey, I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio and we really appreciate you listening to it and being a part of it. Special thanks to Elizabeth Martin who works in the background here but is very much a part of things and if you um, if you haven't heard our other show, ARR Raw, we have another show that comes out once a month. We're just about to put another episode out now. You have to subscribe separately to that. Anywhere podcasts are found is where you can find it. Same as this show itself. You can find it anywhere that podcasts are found. Now, we would love it if you would go out there and give us a rating. Um, drop by anywhere that you find the podcast or wherever you're listening to it and give us a rating. Of course, I'm asking for a five-star rating here, naturally. And, uh, and let others know what you think of the show. Anyway, time to get out there and ride your bike if you can. If not, do something else that's constructive. Plan a trip for later on in the season uh, or do some repairs or practice something. My name is Jim Martin. Thanks very much for listening. Talk to you next week. This is Adventure Rider Radio and this is Nick Sanders from Wales in Great Britain and it's a pleasure talking to you all.